Well, good morning, everyone. I just returned from East Gippsland, a little place called Goongara. Uh, it's in Victoria, Australia, and it's one of, but maybe even the largest thickly forested area in Australia. Uh, hundreds of square kilometres of thick forest. So I thought I'd just say a few words about that trip. Um, I went there for three reasons. Uh, to see my son who lives there. It's a little valley off the grid. There's maybe 30 houses maybe, um, mostly all run on solar. Little, little farms, little self-sufficient style farms or just shacks in some places. Um, so I went to visit my son there and I also went to look at what the land looks like since the Black Summer fires because I haven't been back there for quite a few years. Um, and that was initially quite painful because the forest was just so severely burned. Every, every direction you look, you can see through the forest now. Before the forest was so thick, you couldn't see through it. You couldn't see the mountain range behind it. But now there's black trunks with bleached white dead branches, and you can see through to the mountain range behind. So it's kind of very painful to see that. So for the first few hours, it was kind of painful. But then my eyes adjusted, and I could see the regrowth. And um, the more days I was there, the more of the re regrowth I could see. So I'll say a little bit about that in a minute. And then um, the other reason I went there is to see whether, well, not to see whether, but to imagine what it would look like if we built an ecodharma center there sometime. Maybe in about three years we would start maybe thinking about building down there for a, a twining vine sort of retreat center. So I was looking at the landscape and the roading and just the logistics of where we, how we would put in water and how we would do um, Wi-Fi there because it is possible to do that now. Just sort of looking at it from a practical point of view, it was, very, it was kind of very exciting. I really enjoyed looking at the land from that perspective. So maybe that will happen. We'll need some serendipity and we'll need some dedicated, small number of dedicated people to make that happen. But it might happen. So in terms of my eyes being able to see the recovery, I just wanted to share some of the animals and plants that I saw just so that you know that out there in all of this terribly burnt forest, there's a lot of good going on. Um, Lots of kangaroos, lots of signs of wombats, like wombats like to do their droppings on little rocks and things. Uh, so lots of wombat droppings. Um, there's even wild deer down there, and I heard some deer, a deer crashing through the forest at a certain point. It was a, it's a different sound to kangaroos, so I knew it was a deer. There were black cockatoos, um, herons, kookaburras, Fairy wrens, the little blue fairy wrens, red-chested red robins, um, huge number of frogs, like at night time, it was just 
teeming the sound at night was just this constant sound of thousands of frogs croaking all night. And every kind of pool of water, maybe not every, but almost every pool of water I came across was just teeming with tadpoles. So that was super wonderful just to see that. And one of the neighbours on our land, it's owned by four families, it's a cooperative, the four families we own the land, which is a strange concept, but anyway. Um, they have a wombat orphanage, and uh, so she's on the land all the time, full-time looking after baby wombats, and she's seen platypus in the river, which I was really lovely to, to know, and um, seen little bandicoots, which I've never seen a bandicoot down there, but she said there's lots of bandicoots. Yeah. And our orchard, everything on our land just got completely burned, the housing and the fencing and the chook pens and the orchard. But the, a lot of the orchard trees, even though they did nothing last year, they were just black burned trees. This year they've started to flower. And I went around and counted, I don't know, maybe something like 20 fruit or nut trees starting to flower. So we'll see. They might kind of recover in a, in a way. Who knows? That was nice to see. Uh, today I'd like to talk about um, a traditional Buddhist teaching called the Four Propositions. Uh, and these sorts of teachings take many years to sink in. So you might have heard them already quite a few times, and that's fine, we need to keep hearing them. Or you might be hearing it for the first time, and that's okay too. Just let it kind of flow through you. It just takes many years for it to become uh, to become your natural way of viewing the world. It takes a long time for it to shift from an idea to something that you kind of can intellectually get, to, to something you sort of feel, to eventually just how, how you are. It takes a long time. So the four propositions are existence, non-existence, both existence and non-existence, and neither existence nor non-existence. And these, these four, there's sort of like four ways in which you can see reality. You can say something exists, you can say it doesn't exist, or you can say it both exists and doesn't exist or that it neither exists nor doesn't exist. And this is debated in philosophical works a lot as well. But it is a lot more than a philosophical exercise. Uh, it has profound implica implications for how we, how, we, how we are in the world. And when we can hold all four of them together, we can move through the world in a kind of relaxed sort of a way. I, I heard a koan some time ago that in the commentary on the koan it said it's a bit like being a ball bobbling about on the water, that we can become like that where we just, we're just moving about without resistance to reality. We're just moving with reality like a ball bobbing about on the water. So the first proposition, existence, is definitely the easiest for us to understand because it fits with how conventional society views the world. And that is that everything exists as we see it. And as simple as that is, 
we actually sometimes have trouble even with that, <laughs> even the most simple teaching that things exist. It's about as conventional as you can get. Even that we sometimes have trouble with. Like we have a body. We need to take care of it. We have an emotional world. We need to look after it, pay attention to it. We have relationships. We need to care for them. We have intellectual and creative capacities. We need to care for them. We need to see them, respect them, honour them, care for them. So even this most simple first proposition, sometimes we have difficulty. Sometimes we just want something not to exist and we can't see it, don't look at it. And for each of these propositions, there's what's called a way to slander the proposition, so a way to misuse or misunderstand the proposition. So this first proposition, which is existence, or Nagarjuna calls it affirmation, the first, the first way to kind of slander it is to exaggerate it. So to exaggerate it means to too strongly think that it exists, too forcefully exaggerate its existence. Because we're going to talk about non-existence and both existence and non-existence and neither existence nor non-existence. So clearly existence as a truth is only a partial truth. So the, the mistake we make to slander that truth is to exaggerate that truth. I am here and that person mistreated me is an example to too strongly think that I have been mistreated by them. I'm slandering them by thinking that they are truly something and I'm slandering myself by thinking that I exist in such a distinct way that I can be mistreated and misunderstood as a kind of absolute truth, as a kind of a fact. And so what we can do is just practice in the course of our day, noticing the degree to which we think of things as very solid, very real. And just sort of, just be aware that that's what we're sort of doing and try not to get that, um, and try not to let that be the whole truth. Because what happens is in particular moments, particular moments happen where there's just a strong pull to really feel like something is. And we can't avoid that. Sometimes we need to, to feel that. You know, if you're about to trip over, we have this strong feeling of, I don't want my head to hit the rock. We, ha we have a strong feeling of that, and that's appropriate that in that split second, we strongly feel a sense of existence of my head and that rock. We don't want the two to collide. But very shortly after that moment, 
it's good for us to remember that that's just one of the truths. So we use these truths as they're needed in particular ways, emphasizing different ones. And this exaggerating of the first proposition is the source of all our unnecessary suffering. I mean, it is the source of all our unnecessary suffering is to exaggerate the existence of things. So then if we contemplate this second proposition, non-existence, it has this great capacity to reduce the degree to which we suffer. So this process of looking at these four propositions isn't uh, just an intellectual exercise. It has strong ethical implications as well. It has strong kind of um, felt implications, how we, how we navigate the world, and it has ethical implications. And when we hold all four of them together, we naturally lead a very ethical life, which maybe will become more clear as, as we as we go through them. So the second proposition of non-existence. This is really um, very clearly taught for us in the Heart Sutra that we chant every day in the mornings. And we chant here on Tuesday evenings as well. The Heart Sutra is chanted all around the world for very good reason, because the first proposition, existence, already our society validates that proposition. The second proposition, non-existence, is not very well validated by society. So we need to train in it, we need to hear it, we need to keep on being reminded of this, this teaching of non-existence, or Nagarjuna calls negation, or the first one you could say is, it is, and then the second proposi proposition is, it isn't. So we can call it non-existence, negation, or isn't, or no, or not. Um, so an example, we just take something like this teaching stick. And we've talked about this in here quite a few times using different objects, but it always still can do it again. This teaching stick from the first proposition exists. I have this teaching stick and I don't want to hit the computer screen with it or hit anybody else with it. It would not be a good idea. But from the second proposition, this stick does not exist and does not exist in a way as a, a bit of a shorthand for does not exist as a separate entity. It is made up of everything other than itself. It's not just dependent on other things, that we have a teaching on interdependence, but a more subtle way of looking at interdependence is to see that things are actually made of everything other than themselves. There's actually no thing called a stick. 
There's only all the other factors that made it possible for this stick to appear, such as a tree is the obvious one, a tree, a craftsperson to have carved it, uh, the concept of a teaching stick in the Zen tradition so that someone has one, but a bazillion other things. I mean, basically the whole universe is involved in, in the possibility of this stick appearing. And I think it's nice to use the word appearing rather than saying all these other things make it possible for this stick to exist because then we're falling straight back into the first proposition, maybe exaggerating the first proposition too much. But to make this stick appear, it's not just the tree and the craftsperson and the concept of a teaching stick, but also right now in this moment, our eyes are seeing it and our brains are translating that stimulus and calling it a stick in our heads. So all of these things in infinite array, oxygen, water, carbon and so on, make it possible for us to have this thing that we call a stick. But there's no actual stick. Even, this, even in the most conventional sense, it's slowly deteriorating it's just that it deteriorates at a different pace to our life. Like, if this stick was left outside, it would deteriorate fairly fast. But if it's kept indoors, it might last, you know, for five or six more lifetime, human lifetimes. Could last a long, long time. So, but it is slowly deteriorating and changing. Or maybe even deteriorating is not the best word, but it's slowly changing. It's just that we can't perceive its change. But it's never a static stick. It's not a permanent static stick. It just looks like a permanent static stick. So this is a, what we can do in Zazen and in just our daily contemplation is really look at how things appear to exist but on close examination, they're made up of all these other, th they're made up of everything else. And everything else that makes up that thing is also made up of everything other than itself as well. So this infinitely, we infinitely can keep on going back, looking at each thing that makes each thing, and we can't land anywhere. We can't find anywhere. We we can go out even to the sun, but the sun's changing and the sun's existence came into being because of all the other things that make up universes and they are all made up by the things that made them up and we just cannot land anywhere. No matter how far out in size or how close, how small or how far in time, we can't land anywhere. And it's not just an intellectual exercise. It, the more we really work with this, then we just move through the world more gently. Just as an example, when I went down and saw this forest that I love, I lived there for many years, I carried it in my mind. The whole time I lived in America, I carried this piece of land in my mind, this forested area in my mind, have a deep love for this place. I think I might have lived there longer than 
anywhere else, except maybe my childhood home, maybe. Uh, but by holding, let's just say, the first and second proposition in my mind, I could feel the pain of seeing the damaged forest. That's seeing it from the perspective of the first proposition. But from the perspective of the second proposition, I could relax and see everything as just this incredible flux. It's just this, this dance of appearances, of things going on. Silver wattles growing up, their pioneer species are coming up and they're going to protect the soil for the next few years while the eucalypts get a good foothold, they grow more slowly. And then as, the, as they get a good foothold, the silver wattles will fall because they don't live terribly long. And up will come the eucalypts. Maybe, or maybe not. Maybe another fire will come through. But seeing the whole thing is just a movement. Then I was able to really relax. So the way to slander the second proposition is to underestimate it. Underestimate how profound and how true this teaching of non-existence, of negation, is. That's the way. That's the way to make a mistake with it, so to speak, is to underestimate it. So we tend to exaggerate the first proposition and underestimate the second proposition. So part of our practice is to see if we can get a, a better balance with that and not overestimate form and not underestimate emptiness. Oh, I think I'll read something. This is one of my very favourite books, The Third Turning of the Wheel by Reb Anderson, who is my teacher's teacher. My teacher, Kokyo Henkel, and his teacher, Tension Reb Anderson Roshi. And this is a section not really on the four propositions, but it fits with a way of uh, thinking about how we think that we can do things, we think that we exist independently and think that we do things ourselves, but actually, whenever we do anything, it's because of all the causes and conditions around us and that have already happened that are actually make it possible not, not even for us to do the thing, but for whatever is happening to be happening, which we call us. So this is just one of Tenchin Roshi's beautiful ways of describing that by talking about a pair of shoes. And the... the the heading for this section is called Understanding These Teachings. These great teachings are difficult to understand because they run directly against the way we usually see the world. One way to approach them is to confess, con is to confess that you really don't believe in the teachings. You might notice, for example, that you really don't like, that you really don't think people are contributing to your existence. In other words, that you disagree with the teachings of the other dependent character of phenomena, 
in the case of you. So that other dependent character of phenomena was what I was speaking about a few minutes ago, that this stick is made up of non-stick elements. We might have the thought, I believe that I am in control of things. I am in control of my life. I can put on my shoes. But is a child in control of his shoes? You have to help him, and he knows that. Sometimes he might say, help me put on my shoe. And you might help him, and he gets his shoe on. Then at some point he might say, let me do it. And he thinks he put his shoe on by himself, even though you helped him with his shoe hundreds of times. And he wouldn't have been able to put it on at this time without that. And you helped him in countless other ways, such as that he's alive. And he can think, I'm going to put my shoe on by myself. After that, he thinks he puts his shoes on by his own power. He ignores the millions of times, the millions of ways, the inconceivable ways he was helped to put on his shoes. None of us will ever know all the ways that we were helped to put on our shoes. We can't. It's a mystery how we get to put our shoes on. We think it isn't a mystery. We think we know how we get our shoes on. But when we know how we get our shoes on, that means, according to this teaching, that we projected some essence and attributes onto the situation so that we feel like our shoes are under our control. But putting on, shoe, putting on a shoe is really a mystery. Isn't that lovely? Putting on a shoe is really a mystery. whole universe is required for us to put on a shoe. And it's not even us. And it's not even a shoe. If we, if we can think about ourselves this way, that everything we do is a mystery, and isn't it amazing that we just get to turn up here in this endo? Isn't it incredible that we can breathe in? Breathe out. It's not my doing. It's not my doing that I breathe in and I breathe out. If my mother hadn't raised me, if the world hadn't provided food for me, and it's not even me, but we just say me. So we, it's beautiful to really relax into this mysteriousness of what thing, of things that appear, to know that they're not what they seem, and to appreciate the immensity of it all. So the third proposition is that things both exist and don't exist. And if, if we can practice holding multiple truths at once that appear to be contradictory, life is a lot easier. I think culturally we're encouraged to think that there's an actual truth. That's just the kind of default of society is there's a truth. But even even just in the way we use language, we kind of know that there isn't one truth because we say things like, on the one hand, I want to go, but on the other hand, I don't want to go. I mean, people say things like that all the time. 
So we're, we're, we actually do have just an ordinary sense of knowing that you can have this feeling and you can have that feeling and that they sound contradictory. I do want to go, but I don't want to go. And we generally can hold a little bit of that reasonably well. You know, we don't have too much trouble holding a little bit of that. But this third proposition is inviting us to really hold that things can exist and not exist at the same time. And to be comfortable in that space where things are not black and white. They're kind of black, they're kind of white. <laughs> See if we can be with that. See if we can break the habit of wanting to settle, de settle in on a single truth about something. Whatever the thing, like, I did the wrong thing. Maybe you think you did the wrong thing. Well, it's very good to be able to go, I kind of did the wrong thing, but in another way, it's kind of really understandable. I didn't exactly do the wrong thing. You know, to be able to, to hold the complexity. Everything is far, far more complex. Just to sit with that, the mystery of the complexity and hold multiple truths at once. So something is, something isn't, Something both is and isn't. To practice being all right with that. I think a lot of our restlessness actually comes from trying to pin things down. We want to get certainty. And trying to get cert certainty when there's no such thing as certainty creates a restless energy in us. Well, for some people it's an irritated energy, or for some people it's a depressed energy, or an anxious energy. But particularly just restlessness, a restlessness, I think, but trying to make reality be something that reality can't be, can't be certain. It can be a little bit temporarily certain. That's working with the first proposition appropriately, we kind of want, we, we want security and we can get a little bit of superficial security. Generally speaking, we can kind of get a roof over our heads. Generally kind of make sure we have enough food to eat. But as long as we understand that it's not actual security, it's a kind of workable, one part of the truth type of a security. And if we can be comfortable with that, then we won't fret when things become insecure. We won't fret so much. We'll be able to cope with the uncertainty a lot better. So the oh, uh, and the the way to slander the third proposition is to keep on thinking of it as a contradiction, to get caught in the idea of this is a contradiction. It can't be these two things at once. We have to settle on one side or the other. So our our task is to not slander the third proposition by not focusing on contradiction and instead being able to, to kind of move back and forth, flow with different truths at once rather than going, that contradicts that. Being pedantic, for example. Being pedantic is a good example of getting too caught up in wanting everything to be like the first proposition. 
Pedantic's a good word. Good to notice if we're being a little bit pedantic ourselves and catch ourselves and go, hold on a second, what was that third proposition again? And then the fourth proposition is things are neither existent nor non-existent. So the third was they're both existent and non-existent, and the fourth say neither existent nor non-existent. This really invites us to really slow down, to, to slow down and let go of any intellectualization and to try not to get ground under our feet. There's no ground you can get under your feet with this one. <laughs> that things are neither existent nor non-existent. What Dogen calls leaping beyond the one and the the, the, the one and the many. So what it is leaping leaping beyond the one and the many. Can you? I said that last week. Yeah, yeah that's what I said last week. <laughs> leaping beyond the many and the one. That's how it's leaping beyond the many and the one. Just the idea that we can just free fall through our life. Can we just free fall? Knowing that there's no ground we're going to crash into. There's just no ground to crash into. It's just free falling through our life. It's beautiful to, to contemplate and relax with the possibility that we could just move through our life that way, free-falling through our life, responding to things that they pop up. Actually, now it reminds me a little bit of the original Alice in Wonderland story. I don't know if any of you saw the original book. Beautiful illustrations in the original um, story of Alice in Wonderland. And there's a part where she's falling down, I think it's the rabbit hole, and as she's falling down, there's shelves with different things on them. And she's just relaxing, falling down, going, oh, there's some marmalade. And there's something else. I can't remember what they are. I haven't read the book for many years. But this, this is a beautiful drawing, illustration of her just falling, seeing things as she falls. And it's kind of, in that story, she does land at the bottom. So, But for that bit, for that illustration, it's a beautiful metaphor to just free fall through our life. She's just falling and seeing things as she falls on the shelves on the side of the rabbit hole as she goes down. So we can move through our life that way. And the way this fourth proposition is slandered is by intellectualizing, intellectual fabrication, by getting chewing in, getting into it, chewing it, going, ah, I don't know what people do, but people write books and books about this fourth proposition, um, and that's fine. But what we're wanting to do as practitioners is how can this fourth proposition it's kind of building first, second, third, and fourth together. How can these help us be more caring and present beings in the world? That's what it's for. It's not to try and uh, 
nail down reality. It's absolutely not what to intellectual fabrication would be to try and prove how this is actually so to nail things down is sort of the opposite of the whole point of the whole of all of this isn't to nail anything down it's just maybe see if we can get a little more in accord with the mystery that cannot be known can we get a little more attuned to the unknowability of the universe and therefore function more skillfully and appropriately in it as it, which for us, of course, as practitioners, is to have ethical lives and to be a benefit in whichever ways we make sense for us to be a benefit in the world, given just our, our personalities and our location in place and time from the perspective of the first proposition. So I've got a, a quote at the end um, uh, from a teacher, Bonnie Mirtai Trace Sensei. She's an heir of John Dido Lurie. And uh, I liked what she said here. She was talking about these four propositions. This understanding is not accomplished in a weekend or even in a thousand centuries. When is it finished? When does it begin? To discern this life, we need to practice this life. Is this the world itself? Is it neither? Is it both? Putting aside all that, who will realize the living meaning of an awakened life? So that's sort of putting aside all that. Who will realize the living meaning of an awakened life? That's the flavor of the way we look at these four propositions. How can these four propositions help me lead a more awakened life where I am present and of service? So I think I'll finish there.